Here at Doxedo Bloom, we're excited about making disciples who impact the city and nations. We hope you enjoy today's message. My name's Abel, and I'm part of the leadership uh, of this church, and uh, um, I hope you had a great Valentine's Day on Friday. I had a really cool Valentine's Day. I've got an amazing wife. Her name is Karin. We've been married for about nine years now. We've got two boys. The one is four years old, and the other one is two and a half years old. Um, But we still celebrate Valentine's Day. I promise you, marriage is better than dating. Any married people in the house? Come on. Let's just get the single ones and the dating ones excited about what's ahead. I promise you, marriage is better than dating. And let me just say this. This is what I'm going to try and convince you of tonight. I want to try and show you that marriage is the big plan. That's the big idea that God has when it comes to a love between a man and a woman. The idea, the only thing the Bible ever speaks about is marriage. And it's so much better than any system of dating or anything that you try and compare or substitute that with. And that's what I'm going to try and show you tonight. Now, let me just say this, that tonight's not going to be very practical. We're going to be a little bit more philosophical and speak about the idea of marriage, and yes, it's meant for singles, and it's meant for those who are dating, and definitely those who are married will benefit from this, but when we speak about marriage, it is exactly for those who are not married yet, because if you've got the right picture of marriage, of what God's idea of romance and love is that we celebrate on Valentine's Day each year, and that we're celebrating tonight, 16th of February or Valentine's Sunday, we're probably going to do this each year. We're going to celebrate love. And we not only like just love that you have for your brother, like, you know, romance, you know, the, the, the nice, mushy feeling, that kind of love. That's what we want to celebrate. But I believe that if you've got the right view of marriage, it is going to inform the way that you approach dating, the way that you approach your singleness and everything else. So that's why this is so important. Um, but I want to not only leave you at a place of, you know, having great ideas or beautiful, beautiful ideas of what love is. We want to help you practically also. And so that is why we've got a course. It is the Jack and Jill course. This is the little book. Um, you pay only 50 rand, which is for the printing of the books and then also for the, you know, for the drinks or snacks or whatever that we're going to have at the course. It's a four-week course. It starts on this coming Tuesday. So make sure that you sign up for that If you are single or dating, obviously if you're married, then uh, you sort it and you are everyone else's envy in this auditorium. But the Jack and Jill course is not necessarily for you. It's for those who are single especially. doesn't matter how old you are. If you're single, this will be good for you. Or if we are dating and it's going to be really practical. So make sure you don't miss out on that. Let me just quickly say, Jack and Jill are not brothers and brother and sister. Because I got that question quite a lot. So if you Google... Because I needed to research that, because we, we're not speaking about that kind of relationship series, okay? We, I mean, if you've got those feelings for a sister or for a brother, not in Christ, like your actual sister or brother, then we, we can help you with counseling, but we're not going to officiate your marriage. Sorry, by law, we're not allowed to do that. But this is the other type of Jack and Joel in, in uh, literature, history. Jack and Jill is actually, you know, forbidden lovers, okay? So if you feel like you are a forbidden lover, you just haven't met that forbidden lover of yours, then Jack and Jill is the series for you. Make sure you do that. And then I want to just recommend a book for you. If you've been in church 
for many years, and you've heard all of our dating series and, and sermons that we've ever done on dating and love and relationships, and you're still not married, but you're kind of over it. Like, you already told yourself, I'm not doing Jack and Jill because I've heard it all before, and if you are too cool for school, you know, for our Tuesday uh, evenings, or if you are married, I want to recommend this book to you. It's called The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy Keller. I promise you it will blow your mind. It is an amazing book, especially for those who are married, but also he wrote this book actually for singles, for those who are not married yet, because he wants to challenge the view that we have of marriage. So if Jack and Jill is not for you, make sure you uh, try and find this book on the internet. Um, it'll be really good. And I'm going to quote a bit of what he says about marriage a bit later uh, during this sermon. So there are four myths about romance and love that I want to try and address tonight. The first two we'll spend most of our time on, and the last two not that much time. The first myth that we're going to try and bust tonight is that sex is a sin. There is a sex is a sin myth that we grow up with in church. Some of you are shocked that I use the S word in church. Maybe you grew up like that, then I maybe just want to um, sort of help you to get over that awkward stage of someone speaking about sex. I promise you, God's not going to, you know, smite me with a, a lightning bolt or something if I use the sex word. So just to get over the awkwardness, why don't you turn to the person next to you and say sex, 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 sex. <laughs> say sex five times. Come on. Tell the person next to you sex, 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 sex. Oh, don't make a face. I mean, that makes it... Uh, some of you are like, you turn to the person next to you like, sex, 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 sex. I mean, that's creepy, man. Come on. We're in the church. You know, we're, not, we're saying sex, 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 sex in a godly way, not like sex, 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 sex. Some real excited guys in here. We're only going to be talking about it, I promise. So that's the first myth. The second myth is the myth of love is a feeling. The myth that love is a feeling. Third myth, the myth of the one. That you've got a soulmate out there. I believe that's a myth. We're going to try and bust it a little bit later. Um, in the sermon and the last one, it's too late for me. If you believe it's too late for you in every, any area of romance, uh, I want to show you that's only a myth. So, now that we've got all of the blushing out of the way, let's ask this question. Is sex a sin? Is sex a sin? Now, in order to answer that question... We need to go to right to the beginning, Genesis 1, chapter 1. You can open to Genesis 1. We're going to read verse 28 a bit later also. But we're going to start with, with chapter 1, and it says the following. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when we read that, we think that we're speaking about the sky and the planet. But actually, there was separation between the sky and the land only a few verses later. So when it says in verse 1, the heavens and the earth, it's actually speaking about the place where God resides and where humans resides. It's speaking about everything that is spiritual in our reality and everything that is physical in our reality. God created it. God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything spiritual and everything physical. You see, we grow up in church and we think that God belongs to the spiritual side of my life. But the physical things, there are certain things that God doesn't fit into that. We grow up thinking like that, that God is only spirit, forgetting that God is the God of the spiritual and of the physical. God is the God of everything because He created everything. There's another verse says the same thing, Colossians 1 verse 16, 
all things. Quickly say with me, with the same passion you said the S word. Um, say all things. It's not the same excitement that, that we got earlier. All things were created through him and for him. It's speaking about Jesus Christ. All things were created for him and also through him. Does that perhaps include romance and sex? If it says all things, does it really mean all things? Well, if God created all things, then yes, it does include that. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 26 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Say everything. Is it possible that romance, that Valentine's Day, that passion and sex is part of everything that God has actually created? And so the question, is sex a sin? You need to ask the question, who created sex? You see, we think so often that sex is something that started or developed outside of God. It's like God and everything he made, and then the devil tempted Adam and Eve, and they had sex or something, that it was something that was created outside of God. No, no, no. It's all inside of who God is. Genesis 1 verse 28. This is God speaking to Adam and Eve. Now, you need to read between the lines when I read this. God says to Adam and Eve, Genesis 1 verse 28, Then God blessed them and said, what did he say? Be fruitful and multiply. Wink, wink. Be fruitful and multiply. How do you suppose Adam and Eve were supposed to be fruitful and multiply? What does that mean? Okay, I'm not going to spell it out for you. I can just imagine Adam walking up to Eve after God gave this command. It's like, hey, baby. So, uh, not that I want to do this, but God commanded it. Who am I to disagree with God? God said we should be fruitful and multiply. Something like that may be going down. I don't, know, I don't know why Adam sounds like this, but I think probably, probably when he heard his first command, be fruitful and multiply, he sounded, yeah. That's probably what he sounded like. Well, can you imagine? I mean, sometimes we've got this picture. I mean, sex is outside of who God is. It wasn't created by God. And then I wonder, how do you imagine it went down? Did, I mean, did Eve, like, rock up pregnant or with her first baby, and then God was like, oh, is that how babies get made? Is that how anatomy and biology works? No, God created it. He knew beforehand. It wasn't like God's like, Adam, what are you doing? No, Adam, no. Adam, no, no, leave her. Is sex a sin? No, God created it. It's one of the most beautiful things that God has created. But let's go to the next question. Can sex be a sin? We know this, of anything good that God has made, the enemy, and because of our brokenness, we have warped and broken some of the beautiful things that God has made, and those things can become sinful. But why do they become sinful? Is sex, or can sex be a sin because there's like this moral code? Or is it because we are using it outside of God's designed purpose for that thing that He created? Let me try and explain it this way. So this is an iPad. Okay, we all know that. This is a, the iPad. 
you could give this thing to me, and not knowing what this thing is, I can look at it and say, well, it's flat. I'm pretty sure we're going to have a nice game of Frisbee with this, right? You could say this is a beautiful Frisbee because it looks a lot like a Frisbee, right? And I can start using this as a Frisbee. What would the result be of this? If I start using this outside of its creative purpose, outside of what it was designed for, the result will always be brokenness. It will always be damage, and it will always be hurt if I use this outside of its creative purpose. Now, friends, it's exactly the same when it comes to sex. God designed it for something. He designed it within a, a, a specific context, the context of marriage. But if we use that beautiful thing that God has designed outside of its creative purpose, the result of sex will always lead to brokenness. It will always lead to damage. It will lead to hurt. Now, some of you know this. You've experienced that hurt. You've experienced the disappointment of the, or, or approaching sex in a way that it was different than the way that God actually designed it to be enjoyed. So Hebrews 13 verse 4 says the following. It says, honor marriage. Another translation says that we should keep the marriage bed pure. And God, the sacredness of sexual intimacy between a wife and a husband, God draws a firm line against casual and illicit sex. Now let me just say this. That when God says that this is not good, this is a sin, sex outside of the marriage is a sin. He's not saying it from a place because he wants to punish you or spoil your fun. He's saying it from a place of love because he cares for you. He wants what is better and bigger for you. It's because God loves you that he's actually warning you about how to approach something like sex and when it is a sin and when it's something as beautiful is what it is. It becomes a sin when we use it outside of its creative purpose. And the same goes for every area of our lives. As soon as we start using things that God has created outside of its creative purpose, it becomes sin because the, the, the result will always be damage and brokenness and hurt. Now just quickly imagine for a moment, because this is sort of what we do, when it comes especially to the topic of sex. We want to trust Hollywood instead of the Bible. Imagine for a moment Steve Jobs. I don't know, I suppose everyone knows who Steve Jobs is. He passed away recently. But he's the guy that invented the iPad, okay? He actually invented it in 1998, thought about it, put so much work into it, so much design and detail and effort and planning into this iPad. Only in 2010 did they launch the iPad when he felt it was ready. Now imagine for a moment, Steve Jobs was alive and he came to me and he said, oh, I see you've got the iPad there. Let me just explain to you how it works. This is what you can do. You can even use it to, to read Bible because there's going to be an app. You can use it to, to I don't know, type. Uh, you can do it for, use it for so many things. It's something between a phone and a, and a desktop or like a, a laptop computer. It's amazing. And he starts explaining to me how to use this iPad. I imagine I look at him and I say, Steve, who the hell do you think you are to tell me what to do with my Frisbee? <laughs> who do you think you are to tell me how to live my life with my Frisbee? This is a Frisbee. Leave me alone. That's stupid, right? 
trying to argue with the guy that designed it. We do the same thing, not only with sex, but with so many other things, with love, romance, and many other things. We try and argue with the designer. And he's trying to tell us something out of love because he wants you to get the, the full experience, the fullness of what romance and sex is. And he's trying to explain to you it's, it's meant for marriage. It's this beautiful thing. Just trust me. If you use it in this way, it's the best way that you can possibly approach it. And we say, who the hell do you think you are to tell me how to live my life? I don't need a book to tell me how to live my life. And we try and argue with the person that is the most smartest person that has ever lived and also the person that loves you the most. No one's ever going to love you more than God. No one's ever going to be more for you than God. Yet, you say, thanks God, but no thanks. See, when it comes to sex, God is the smartest that there's ever been. So trust Him. Trust Him. God is also the most loving and the most for you that any any person has ever been or will ever be. So trust him. We can put our trust in him. So, in which context did God create this thing of not only sex, but, but actually romance and many other things? I'm not saying that you can't experience a bit of love and romance before that, but the fullness of that thing, the way it was designed, where do we find that? And in the Bible, the only way that Actually, there's ever spoken about romantic love is in the context of marriage because that's the goal. That's what it was meant for. Mark 10, verses 6 to 9. This is Jesus speaking, and he's referring back to Genesis. And he says, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united with his wife. And the two will become one flesh, leaving everything behind, closing all of the back doors, becoming one flesh, so that they no, are no longer two, but one. They will, they will lose themselves for one another to become one. Letting go of themselves. Verse 9, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, the romance that God has intended for us is so much more than just falling in love. And that's the second myth I want to speak about. The myth of feelings. <laughs> you know that mushy feelings we get. And sort of that, you know, the movies sort of sell us those beautiful feelings. Love is so much more than that. I'm not saying love excludes that. It's like, you know, that's like a god, like a, a flower. You know, those mushy feelings, uh, those beautiful feelings, that's like a flower. But the love that God speaks about is the garden. It's the soil with, where the, those flowers are actually planted. And instead of just exchanging the flower for a new one, you need to get the soil right, because if the soil is right, the new flowers will keep on coming up, and it will be renewed over a course of a lifetime. Love is not a feeling, because if love is actually meant for marriage, here's the thing, marriage is not a feeling. Marriage is a commitment. It is a covenant. It is a decision. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is really unromantic. <laughs> like saying love is a decision, it is commitment, it is a covenant. We might think that doesn't sound very romantic. I came to the wrong church this Sunday. But I want to show you how that is way more romantic. If it's not based on nice feelings, if it's not based on how you make me feel, but if it's based on my decision, my promise, my covenant for you, how that is way more romantic 
and how that's part of the biggest romance story that there's ever been. I want to just quickly tell you about an old man, um, him and his wife, uh, they, they did this interview uh, with an old guy and an old lady, and they were married for more than 60 years. Can you imagine? More than 60 years. So they were probably like 80 years old. And they spoke to the gentleman, and they asked him, so, so in the 60 years of marriage, have you ever considered divorce? And then he shrugged. He shrugged. He says, divorce? Divorce? No, never. Divorce, never. Murder, a few times. But divorce, never. <laughs> Now, obviously, I'm not saying that you should want to kill your wife or your husband, but the point is, it's this thing that regardless of how I feel, even on the days that I feel I can, I can kill you, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay faithful because it's something so much more than my feelings. You see, if it's based on feelings, as soon as you feel like that, you leave. But if it's something stronger than feelings, if it's covenant, we stay. My wife and I, we always say also, we heard this from another person saying this, that for my wife and myself, there's only two options in marriage. It's either going to be happily married or unhappily married, but it's going to have to be married. And obviously, we don't want anyone to be unhappily married, but as soon as you close all of the back doors and say, we are in a covenant, I don't even care if I'm going to feel unhappy. I'm going to stay. As soon as you do that, you're preparing the ground. And I promise you, there's going to be so much flowers that are going to keep on coming um, in your marriage. Now, the greatest romance of all time had very little to do with feelings. The greatest romance of all time had very little to do with feelings. How many of you are in a contract at the moment? Cell phone contract, a rental agreement, maybe with the university or where you're renting, uh, maybe you bought a house and you signed a contract. You are in a contract. So how does a contract work? There are terms and conditions, right? I mean, it's literally a document of terms and conditions, what you need to do and what they need to do. And if you don't do this, then they will stop doing that. That's what a contract is all about. And both parties signs it and its terms and conditions apply. For as long as I pay my bill, they will keep on giving me data and minutes and SMSs, but no one wants SMSs, right? I don't know why they give us 300 free SMSs. No one uses them anyways. But as long as I pay my bills, as long as I do A, B, and C, they will keep on doing D, E, and F. It is what? It is conditional. Now, unfortunately, so many of us uh, or in, in our world enter a marriage where it is a contract. Its terms and conditions apply. If you do that, I will do this. We come to one another some, so often in love, and so unfortunately, sometimes in, if you're playing the dating game, not with a bigger goal to get married, if you're just playing the dating game, it is a conditional love type of paradigm. For as long as you will be what I think you are and what I need you to be for me, I will keep on being what I'm supposed to be for you. So for as long as this works, we're going to stay together. But if it doesn't, we're going to separate, okay? And so we come into this thing. For as long as you will do what you're supposed to do, I will do what I'm supposed to be. It is conditional love. There are conditions added to it. But God does it radically different. I want to quickly tell you a story of how God approached this thing. You see, in the Old Testament, something similar to contracts was something called a covenant. 
the covenant wasn't less than a contract, but it was a lot more than, than a contract. And people would make covenants with one another. The way it usually worked is that the, the servant or the less important one will make a covenant with the more important one. And the way they will make a covenant with one another, this is quite gruesome. You'll enjoy this if you've got a visual brain or you won't enjoy it that much. But what they would do is they would take animals and slaughter the animals, but in a very specific way. You'll take the animals and you'll cut them in half. Uh, the Bible speaks about cutting the animals in two, and I'm always curious as to did they cut the animals like this or did they cut them like this, you know? I think it will be epic if they did it like this, but probably a bit more difficult. But so they, they would cut up animals in two pieces, and then they will put them on two sides, different animals, and they'll make an aisle, right? So with half of an animal on this side, half of an animal on the other side. There's an aisle, and when you make this promise to the other person or the lesser important to the greater person, saying, I promise to do A, B, and C, or B, you know, this, this, and this to you, it is a covenant, a promise you make, then that person would walk through the aisle, and as they're walking through the aisle, what are they doing? They are acting out the curse of the covenant. And so basically what they're saying is, if I am not what I promised I will be, then may it be done to me as it was done to these animals. If I'm not going to be faithful, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may it be done to me as was done to these animals. And so God says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And Abraham is the father of our faith in that moment. He was actually representing all of us. And he's saying, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And from your seed, I'm going to bless all mankind because Jesus actually came from the seed of uh, Abraham. And, so, and then Abraham says, but how do I know that you're going to bless me? It's one thing to say, I love you, baby. It's another thing to say, well, let's make it legal. I'm going to give up all of my freedom. I'm going to do it according to the customs of my culture. I'm going to do it according to, to, uh, to the law of my country. I'm going to say in every way possible, I'm going to make it official that I love you because I'm giving away my freedom. That is real love. And so Abraham says, how do I know that you're going to bless me? And God says, I will make a covenant with you. And so he tells Abraham, Abraham expects that he's going to walk through these pieces of, you know, animal. And so, so Abraham, he slaughters the animals, whichever way he did it, I don't know. And so he starts packing the animals, and then he actually falls asleep. And this is what happens in Genesis 15, verses 17 and 18. We're just going to read that. And when the sun had set, and darkness had fallen, there was actually a thick darkness, some translation says, that, that fell. A smoke firepot with a blazing torch, which is a similar way in which God appeared to Moses in Mount Sinai a bit later, appeared and passed between the pieces. Not Abraham, but God. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, friends, this is shocking, and this is radically different to any other covenant, any other contract that we've ever seen and that they've ever seen in, their, in, in this ancient time. Because firstly, God goes through the covenant, wasn't supposed to be God. And what God is saying, if I am not faithful, if I'm not going to be the God that I promise you I will be for you, and this includes you sitting here tonight, if I'm not going to be the God that I promise I will be to you, may it be done to me as was done to these pieces. That's the level of commitment that God has given to you. But then the second shocking thing, and this is the most shocking thing, and it includes you and me, Abraham is never asked to go through the pieces. God goes through the pieces on Abraham's behalf also. 
And he says, Abraham, if you are not everything you're supposed to be, may it be done to me like was done to these pieces. Centuries later, thick darkness came down on Calvary. Jesus hung on a cross. And Jesus fulfilled that promise. Because you and I know that we were not faithful. We are not the people that we are supposed to be before God. We are not the people. We fail in every way. We don't keep the covenant from our side. God has always been faithful, but we've been unfaithful. And God kept his promise. And Jesus was split for you and for me because he was faithful to his promise. That's the level of love. That's the level of commitment. That's the level of choice that God aims at you. Now, let me ask you this question. Did feelings have anything to do with that? <laughs> do you think that Jesus was hanging on the cross with romantic feelings for you and me? Do you think the thing that kept Jesus on the cross, that he endured the cross, do you think it was because he was looking at us and thinking, oh, you're so beautiful. You, you just make my heart feel so mushy. No. God knew exactly who we are. God knows exactly who you are with all of your sin, all of your shortcomings. God knows them intimately. Yet he goes to the cross. Why? Because of a decision, because of a commitment, because of a covenant promise that he made with humanity. And because God is faithful, let me ask you this. You think feelings are more romantic than decision? When someone tells you, I don't care what you become, I don't care how you're going to fail me in the future, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay your husband no matter what. When kids come and your hormones are all over the place and you're not a pleasant person to be around with, guess what? I'm going to stay. You see, my wife married me when I was 24. I had lots of hair. But she didn't only marry the 24-year-old Abel. She married the 33-year-old Abel that is busy balding. And she married the 40-year-old Abel that's going to be completely bald. She married the 83-year-old Abel. She made a promise, not based on her feelings. Because why? My, I'm going to change over time. So obviously her feelings are also going to change. Friends, the type of love, the, the type of romance that God has in store for us is stronger and, and better and bigger than feelings, than feeling in love. Love is not a feeling. It's something so much bigger and better. You see, Christ calls us to this type of love in marriage to one another. Now, again, you might think that I'm, I'm speaking to married people. No, no, I'm speaking to single people. You see, as you start understanding how beautiful marriage is and what God has in store for you, you will start seeing that everything else is second best. That's what I'm, I'm not, I, I'm actually, I don't ever want anyone to feel guilty about like where they are with those things. I just want to show them the real picture, the big idea, the, what the iPad is actually meant for so that you realize I'm busy settling for second best. And God, I want to come back to what you designed, what you have got for me. See, Jesus did not die because we were lovely. Jesus actually died to make us lovely. That's beautiful. So, 
just quickly to compare that with the type of system that we live in often today. The type of system is you see someone, you lock eyes, you've got those emotional feelings. Again, they're beautiful. They are the flowers in the garden, but make sure you focus on the soil, on the covenant, not only on the flowers. But uh, Tim Keller, in his book, he explains this, and this is a sad, cold reality of those mushy feelings that you get. Who's been in love the past year or so? Just, you know, those feelings. Come on. Many of us. Those feelings are great, right? But here's the thing. I also experienced those feelings when, you know, I first met Karin, and I realize today that back then, this was the reality. Listen to what he says. What you think of being as head over heels in love is in large part a gust of ego gratification. But it's not like the profound satisfaction of being known and loved. Here's the thing. Sometimes it's got a lot to do, to do with our own ego. We love the idea that that person also has feelings for us. And so in some sense, you're actually just in love with yourself, right? It's not so much about who that person is. It's about how that person makes you feel about yourself. It's actually a self-centered type of system. You see, here's the reality, is that when you are in love like that, you always put the right foot forward, right? You don't want them to see your bad parts. We try and hide from the whole world, even your friends. You hide the deepest, darkest parts of who you are. You put the good foot in front, especially when you are in love, especially when you're in love. You even put on your best face, you know, the makeup, and everything, because you want to impress that person. You know what the problem is? If you are still living in that paradigm of trying to impress, trying to put the best foot forward, the other person will never get to know you. They will never, ever really discover who you really are, and if they don't know who you are, do they really love you? Or do they love the idea of you, or a picture of you that they colored in themselves? They saw the outlines, but they colored it in. It's Maybe just a fantasy that they're in love with. So, I know it sounds bleak, but I promise it's going to get positive. So, Tim Keller goes on. When over the years, someone has seen you at your worst, when someone found out who you really are, when they've seen the ugly parts, when you become ugly, at your worst, and knows you with all of your strengths and flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it is a consummate experience. What he's trying to say is when someone really finds out who you are, they get to know you, and they, st and they say to you, I'm still staying. Not because of your performance, not because of how attractive you are, but in spite of your performance and in spite of how unattractive you're becoming, <laughs> I'm staying. That's real love. He goes on to, wrap, or to conclude this. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. And someone doesn't really know you. The point I'm trying to get at is not that, you know, dating is, is, is wrong. Not at all. I really, come and do the Jack and Jill course. We're going to show you it's a beautiful thing. We're going to help you to do it in a God-honoring way. All I'm saying is that it's second best. You ain't seen nothing yet. It's only superficial at that moment. But, and then he goes on, this is very important, to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. That's why we put the best foot forward. Because we're afraid someone will find out who we are and reject us. But to be fully known, when someone finds out who you really are, to be fully known and truly loved, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. That's the gospel, my friends. 
Because God looks at you and he knows exactly who you are. You can't hide anything from him. You are known fully by God. Yet, he accepts you. Yet, he loves you. Even though he found out who you are. For some people, it's difficult to accept the love of God because you think, I'm not good enough. You're missing the point. You think love is based on feelings or how good you are. No, no, no. It's based on God's choice of you. It's actually based on God's covenant. It's based on his faithfulness. God knows who you are, yet he decides to love you. Now tell me that's not more romantic than, oh, I like you, girl. You like me. (laughs) When the Bible speaks about romance, It's something so much bigger. And in marriage, we taste the gospel. We get a foretaste of the love of God when your wife keeps on loving you even when you lose your hair. (laughs) And you get lots of hair on your back. And this is like a confession. It's real. Like I lost the hair on my head, but they're not gone. They just moved down my back. But guess what? (laughs) That girl still loves me. Something so much bigger. It's a taste of God's love that we have in marriage. I'm hoping that you're seeing that there's something bigger. This is, again, it might sound like a sermon for married people. Let me just say this. My hope for you as a single person tonight or as a person dating, or maybe especially for those who are single, my hope for you is that you would stop fantasizing about getting a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but that you would start praying for a husband or for a wife (laughs) because that's so much bigger. We're not going to settle for second best. There is a greater love that God has for you in a husband and in a wife, but more especially also in him. Third myth, myth, real quick, is the myth of the one, the perfect one. You see, if you think about everything I just said, about this covenant, you make this decision, I'm all in. I'm giving my freedom away, my future away to you, not knowing who you're going to become or how you're going to be in the future, how you're going to look, then some will assume that I really have to be sure about who I choose, right? I have to make sure I choose the right one. No, wrong. This actually releases the pressure because it's saying the pressure is not on the other person being the perfect one. You see, my marriage to my wife is not based on that she's the perfect one and that I'm the perfect one. No, no, it's based on a covenant promise. And because we love each other, over time we will become the perfect ones for one another. There's a theologian, he said that you always marry the wrong person. Because <laughs> he says that no two human beings are compatible because both of you are sinners and, and or, or, you know, full of sin and, and you are broken in many, many ways still. But when you get married and you keep on giving yourselves away and start loving one another selflessly, you become the perfect one. It is a myth to think that there is a perfect one outside there for you. Now, you're going to marry them, and then over a lifetime of marriage, you're going to become the perfect one. That is romantic. So, and just quickly, besides, if there's only one person for each and every other person, you realize that if one person marries the wrong person, the whole system is messed up. Some of the married people are sitting there saying, I know, I, I, I'm the one that broke the system. It's like, I know what you're speaking about. You see, here's the thing. This is Hollywood's formula that Hollywood gives us. I'm saying Hollywood because that's like the picture that we grow up because we never speak about these things in church. We grow up thinking with, I need to find the right person 
then fall madly in love, then build all of my hopes and my dreams and my future fulfillment on that person. That's so much pressure on another human being. You will always be disappointed if you're trying to find the right person. And then, if disappointment occurs, repeat steps one, two, and three. Just change the flower for a new one. Instead of realizing it's not about finding the perfect person, it's about becoming the perfect person. We're going to go into those details a lot more in the course, and if you're not list for that, buy the book. It will be good for you. Fourth myth. Maybe the worship team can join me because I do feel like we need to respond in worship and sing about this love that God actually has for us. Because I'm hoping that after tonight, that the biggest thing that you would have heard is the love that God has for you. So the worship team, they can come and join me in the front so long. So the fourth myth is that it's too late for me. Or maybe too late for us. Maybe you're already married and you feel stuck in your marriage. And you feel like you've tried many things, but it's just not working. You think it's too late for you. I want to say tonight, no, God has got a beautiful marriage for you. Something very romantic, where something broken, like your marriage, can be restored and become something that is God-honoring and in the likeness of the gospel type of love that God has for us. Maybe you are, I don't know, dating uh, I don't know, wherever you might find yourself in a relationship, and you might feel, I've totally messed it up. I want to say it's not too late for you. Maybe you're at the, at the place where you think, well, I've been dating forever now. I probably have to marry this person. And you feel stuck in that way. Maybe you need a little bit of family around you that might help you to point out that, no, you should leave this person. It's not too late for you. God can restore. Maybe you're a single person and a little bit advanced in years, and you think it's too late for me. Maybe not. Maybe God still has hope for you. Maybe your area of failure or disappointment has been in the area of sexual purity. Maybe you feel you've lost your purity because you failed in that area. You think it's too late for me. This beautiful marriage where the husband kept himself pure and the wife kept herself pure and now they come together in a covenant relationship. And you think that you are excluded from that because you've lost your sexual purity. You believe it's too late for you. I want to say no. That's the gospel. I thought it was too late for me, but then Jesus saved me. Because he was hanging on the cross looking at everything, all the ugliness in me, all of the sinfulness in me, and saying, I've chosen you. I can restore I can call you no longer a sinner, but I can call you holy because of the work that I'm busy doing for you. If God can call you holy, He can forgive your sins, He can purify you, He can restore you. He can restore your purity that you can also have that beautiful picture of a clean husband and a clean wife coming together in a covenant marriage relationship. God can restore you in every single way. doesn't matter how much you've messed up. I want us to stand because we're going to worship in a moment. And as we stand, if you need prayer, I want us to create an opportunity to pray for one another. If it's in the area of, you know, it's too late for me, marriage, a relationship, you just feel like you need prayer in any way 
uh, in this area of relationships, why don't you just quickly raise your hand because as a body of believers, as the priesthood of all believers, we want to turn to one another and pray for one another. So just quickly raise your hand wherever you are. If there's anything that needs to be restored or just maybe a hope in your heart, you want to pray, maybe you just want to say a, single, a simple prayer of God. I don't want to just, you know, fantasize about getting a girlfriend or boyfriend. I want to ask you tonight, will you give me a husband or wife? You know, something like that. It could be anything. Just quickly raise your hand that the people around you can see you. The people around you, can you just turn to that person? And when I say the time is right, we're going to pray for them. For now, you can just uh, uh, take your hands down. And in a moment, we want to pray for you. But before we do that, maybe you are at a place where you thought beforehand, before tonight, that it's maybe too late for you. That God is not interested in you. You're standing here tonight and you feel that you are disqualified before God. Just remember, friends, it was never about you. God didn't go to the cross. Jesus didn't go to the cross because you're lovely. He went to the cross because you failed so that he can make you lovely again. And if you need to get saved tonight, I want to invite you to raise your hand because we want to start walking the road with you, a road of discipleship. If there's anyone like that, why don't you just raise your hand saying, I want that covenant love of God. I know it's for me. And tonight, I want to say I'm included in that. You want to receive that love of God tonight. Why don't you just raise your hand because we want to pray for you start walking a road with you. Is there anyone? Anyone? Just one more chance. There's a lady. Praise God for you. Praise God for you. One of the ministry team members are going to come to you now. We're going to explain to you what's going to happen now. Anyone else? Just give one more chance. Anyone else that wants to accept this this love of God is not about your performance, but it's about His faithfulness. Anyone like that? There's a gentleman there. I praise you, God. I thank you, God, for revealing your love for that guy. I thank you, God. So for those who've raised their hands, let me just quickly explain. There's a, someone from our ministry team with you. And as we're going to keep on in worship, they're going to go with you because we want to hear your story. And then we want to pray for you. And then we're going to invite you to church next week because there is a little book that we want to work through with you because we don't only want to pray for you tonight. We want to walk a road of discipleship with you so that you can grow in your knowledge and your understanding of this, this unconditional love that God has for you. We want you to really drown in that kind of love. Lord Jesus, I pray for those two people, God, that they would keep on experiencing your love and I know, God, that from tonight, their life will be different, God, because they know that you accept them, not because of their performance, but because of your goodness. May their lives, God, become a life of worship to you and to you alone. Let's celebrate with them. God is good. Let's celebrate with them. Amen. Amen. Those of you who need prayer, I'm going to start praying for you. And then as I end off, we're going to worship, but then the friends around you are going to keep on ministering to you a little bit. Uh, let's pray for those people who wanted prayer. Together, those who are standing next to them, let's lay hands on them and be the priesthood of all believers. Lord Jesus, we pray for our friends and we ask that you would come and restore. You know the desires of their heart. 
We know, you know the prayer in their heart, God, even before they ask. And I ask that you would not only answer that prayer, God, but that you would come close to them and they would discover that your love is even bigger than those desires in their heart. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Make sure that you get connected to this family on mission by joining us at one of our Sunday services.